everyone. This is Abraham letting you know that Why We Do What We Do is supported in part by the Disseminating Behavior Analysis Special Interest Group. Welcome to Why We Do What We Do. I'm your host, Abraham. And I am your co-host, Rhino. And we're here to talk about uh, a bunch of psychology stuff. Yeah. So specifically, what we're going to tackle today is um, called electroshock therapy. And uh, so we're going to go a little bit of history of this, talk about what it entails and all that sort of thing. So I think, um, did you pick this topic, I believe? I don't know where it came from, actually. Okay. I think it was just like a, a mad brainstorm list. Okay. Um, it was not something I'm super, like, uh, fluent in, but okay. because of putting it on the list, like, now I know a lot more about it. Yeah. Um, and so that actually already sort of brings up the point that this isn't a, this really, this isn't a first line of defense for most things. And this isn't all that common Although it has been depicted as being this, like, it's been overly used and applied to all these things, and it shows up in TV shows and movies and whatnot. Um, it's not it's not that common of a treatment for psychological disorders, uh, which is why neither of us have been in situations, at least I haven't, where I've used it or even been around a place where it was used or anything like that. Yeah, I've never, I'm, same here. I've never yeah. been in that situation myself. Okay. There's a, uh, one thing that I thought was interesting, there's just, like, a huge variance in the researchers perspectives on the effectiveness it's all the way from it's completely ineffective um, and it causes brain damage right. all the way to the other end of like this is the effective treatment quote-unquote that we should be using always yeah it's kind of it's kind of crazy the bees knees yeah <laughs> yeah so let's let's get into the history of this a little bit apparently i actually didn't know this but apparently the use of inducing seizures for a medical treatment has been around for centuries. Um, but the electroconvulsive therapy, or um, some kind, sometimes called electro, uh, electroshock therapy, has really only been around since about the 1930s for the most part. Um, and so uh, it was really in the sort of 1934, 1937, 1938 that uh, these, there started being papers and research that was published on this. Uh, conferences were being held where researchers were talking about this and where they actually started really applying it to humans in sort of a systematic way. Yeah, but then as we were like digging into the history too, it, it goes way back farther than that, right? And yeah. it's even hard to pinpoint where things really started. Right. Uh, even as early as the, I think, 1740s, there was some description of the use of, of electricity in uh, at least some kind of medicinal capacity. And it's varied how they how people attempted to use this. Now, just to sort of dive into why someone would do it or even what it's supposed to do is electroconvulsive therapy or ECT. I'll just call it ECT from here on out. Yeah. Uh, as it's applied, generally is is applied to the brain, and it either flows through the entire brain or flows through only a portion of the brain called bilateral or unilateral, which is to say it'll either go through uh, one hemisphere or both, and it is it induces seizures. That's the whole point. Okay. All right. And this is supposed to help with various types of mental disorders. So um, if you if you watch a show or a movie like, I'm thinking immediately of American Horror Story, mm -hmm. Asylum, uh, where the people who have these, um, the talk in ways that seem psychotic 
And so the line of defense is just like, shock him. <laughs> just yeah. strap him down and shock him. It's crazy. But it really is supposed to be used with informed consent, which is people will have to agree to have it used. Um, you're not, as far as we could tell, it was not common, if ever really, the practice to like, against someone's will, hold them down and shock them. That being said, a lot of horrible things happen in the name of psychology to people where they were supposed to be consenting to those treatments and, and were receiving inappropriate treatments or inappropriate versions of treatments. So it certainly um, was the case that it was improperly used, but maybe not as commonly as depicted in some of those shows. Yeah, that's probably my, my biggest concern personally is it's just like as we're putting information out there on things, topics like this, it's where are the boundaries? Like where was it actually um, maybe effective and where is it not? Because we can meet, we, we we definitely need to not be perpetuating ineffective treatments. That's sure. It's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> um, so another thing that kind of comes to mind there is the one thing I like was really taught through a few different mentors was procedurally things can be very different and it can have much different effects. So electroconvulsive therapy um, is very different than something such as like contingent shock, right? Yeah, absolutely. And especially because with electroconvulsive therapy, they're, tend, they're supposed to be, um, I think, relatively brief treatments where it's like you apply this for a couple period, you know, a couple moments, maybe, you know, six to 10 minutes or something, uh, where someone is sedated uh, through a, um, a general anesthetic, and they are so quote unquote, put to sleep. Mm -hmm. And then they receive this, this electroshock therapy to their brain for a period of time. And then that's it. Like they go off and sort of do the lives. And there might be multiple treatments that happen, but in contingent electric shock is a totally different yeah. type of application of electricity to some kind of psychological therapy. So where do we want to kind of go? Like, do we want to draw that line now or is there more in the history of yeah. ECT? I think we'll just describe a little bit more of sort of what it is and how it's used and where it's supposed to be effective. And then, and then maybe dive into the contingent electric shock. If that's cool with you. Yeah. Okay. So, where this tends to be most often prescribed is in depression. That's sort of the most frequent place where people might prescribe ECT. But it's like I said, it's really never a first line of defense. This is when it's there's an immediate risk of suicide uh, when there are people who have not been responsive to other uh, pharmaceutical treatments um, or prescription drugs, stuff of that nature, and their depression is very severe. So those are the cases under which it tends to be recommended at least in the literature um, where people or the research where people have used ECT. Yeah, and to kind of paint a picture, uh, the technical word I believe they use is catatonia, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, so essentially the person is no longer engaging in any of the daily functions that they really need to be doing to be able to kind of care for themselves and uh, be safe in the world and such, right? Yeah, So precisely. eating is severely impacted, Yeah, getting up, going to work, all those sort of things are so impacted and nothing else is working. Right. No other matter, or sorry, psychological treatments that that's when this sort of stuff's considered, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it seems to be that, yeah, it's pretty exclusively those pretty severe cases where other things have failed to work. And so people who receive this treatment, if you look at a lot of the major reviews that have been, been done in the literature, and I found some as recently as 2014 or 2015, I think, they tend to really actually support this idea that these brief um, exposures to ECT 
are actually very, pretty effective at alleviating some of the symptoms of people who, uh, who are at the level that they're catatonic and really severe. That being said, it's not 100%. Not everyone's going to respond to this. And it's at least some of the numbers I saw where at least 50% of people who do receive it will have a full relapse back to their catatonic state within 12 months. So the longevity of it isn't great either. Yeah. <laughs> Um, there are other side effects that have been reported. One of the most common ones is sort of just memory loss and confusion, especially the um, e time immediately following the, the therapy itself. So people might come out of their, I guess, sessions where they're getting shocked, yeah. and they have difficulty uh, remembering things that were immediately prior to that or even forming new memories for a while, and also might struggle with um, just being like seeming disoriented for a short period of time. Yeah. So I guess one thing we haven't really highlighted is like what some of the other treatments necessarily might've been that they tried before then. Right? Oh yeah. Great point. Um, so those are also outside of my, my, I guess not completely outside of my world. Yeah. Um, there's definitely like behavior analytic uh, approaches towards working with people um, in the mental health field. Right. Sure. But me, like me, Personally, I haven't had a lot of experience at all working with those sort of populations. What right. else? What else is out there though? Like before we get in these ECTs. Well, most people, their first line of defense is going to be one or two things, or those things combined. And that's either going to be antidepressants or some other psychotherapeutic drug. Like mood stabilizers. Exactly yeah. right. Uh, lithium is common. And, or the other one might be a general sort of talk therapy where you sort of meet one-on-one -on -one with a psychologist or a psychiatrist who will work on uh, what they might call like a cognitive therapy model, which is a lot of, tell me why you're sad. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm oversimplifying. That's obviously not how those sessions go. Um, but where it's, it's more structured around a, a verbal exchange between a therapist and their patient than it is just a... Um, yeah, you're crazy. Here's some drugs. Go take these. Yeah. And we'll see if you're better in a week. Yeah, and those talk therapies have been extremely. I mean, same thing across the board in their effectiveness. But right, that, there's actually a lot of uh, really good approaches in that. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah um, there's there's several different types of talk therapies that have shown to be very effective in dealing with depression. Um, and I think one of the most one of the most well known types is called cognitive behavior therapy or CBT. Mm -hmm. um, are you familiar with? with some of the, the way that CBT sh works? Uh, yeah, somewhat. We should probably paint a picture. Yeah. Um, let's do that. Okay. Yeah? Yeah. Just a brief? Yeah, go for it. Okay. So my understanding was that there was kind of three waves of behavioral therapies. Mm -hmm. um, the first one being really kind of in the heydays of uh, the initial kind of behavioral approach. Sort of the behavior and, modification. Yeah, yeah. and people, people moving into um, the world of kind of mental health and working mm -hmm. in that area. Right. Um, largely, there was there was a little bit of progress, but the the collective of everybody in psychology mm. essentially was like this wasn't enough. We need something else. Okay. Enter uh, the second wave of behavioral therapy. Okay. You want to describe that one a little bit? Um, well, I'm not actually totally sure what you're referring to, but in the behavior mod days, I think that um, what you're talking about there is it was basically just let's throw in some reinforcement. Um, and let's use some punishment and let's use some restraint when necessary. Um, but it was a lot of like, you know, people carrying around the bags of M&Ms and, <laughs> and then like people who were like... That's how it was perceived, yeah. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was kind of introduced at a time which, uh, how I understand it at least, was there was a lot of people that were looking for 
really getting at like what we kind of talked about in our past episode of like, are we really getting at the consciousness? Are we really getting at the mind of these individuals? Are we mm-hmm. really reaching those folks? Right. And that's where the kind of cognitive uh, revolution came in. And that, that was, the second wave? that would be the second okay, wave. Yeah. Okay. I wasn't sure if that's where you're going with that or not. Yeah. Cool. Um, and yeah, the, the CBT or cognitive behavior therapy model, it's been around for quite a while now. There's a lot of different ways that people apply it, but the general approach has, uh, it's sort of a two pronged approach. Um, which is really implied by the name cognitive behavior therapy. And the cognitive portion of it has to do with, this is the, the talk therapy aspect where the person who is the therapist has the role of trying to address the way that the person is thinking about their problem, right? Mm-hmm. And so they, I've even heard it referred to as cognitive restructuring. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's very common. And so because this is all based inside of language, there seems to be a sort of a limit to how well that language could apply to how that affects the individual. So, mm-hmm. for example, I could describe to you all day how the laws of aerodynamics work, but you're not going to walk out of here and be able to fly, <laughs> yeah. right? So, I there, wish. <laughs> right. And so, um, the reason I say that is because uh, the behavioral aspect of this then tackled what was the actual thing that the person was doing, and how do we change, or how the therapist approach was will change both the way that think about it and the the practices that they're engaging in yeah and that's that's kind of a good segue into the third wave which was really kind of looking at maybe we can't necessarily change per se the way that people are thinking about these sort of things right so there's actually it'd be really fun to go into some of that actually on another episode of like uh can you change those sort of thoughts right um this is that's where kind of the third wave approaches and there's a couple in particular acceptance commitment therapy dialectical behavioral therapy um there's others uh functional uh, analytic therapy yeah Yep. Or yeah, psychotherapy. Yeah, yeah, psychotherapy. Yeah, functional, functional, analytical, uh, psychotherapy, and with those, they're just really looking at kind of blending. I kind of look at it as like in a, in a, a very kind of lay level of like they're blending the uh, first and the second wave kind of approaches together. Sure. Um, they're they're kind of saying like we need to go in there, we need to be constructive and help the person kind of rebuild in some sort of way, but we can't necessarily rebuild thoughts in the way that people are thinking. We need to kind of approach it more of this. Uh, kind of nurturing and right. um, very, I don't know, kind, like therapeutic, like understanding the yeah, yeah. process. So to enter some of the mindfulness and those sort of ideas. Yeah. So yeah, that's, uh, I wanted to maybe just briefly hit those three areas um, and just kind of mention like there's there's those things and there's, that's a hundred years of history that we just covered in like what, six, <laughs> six minutes. Yeah, we'll probably maybe. dive into each of those topics, um, I think, in their own episode at some point. Yeah, and you could have one just, yeah, you could... You could talk for forever about those things. Yeah. Um, but those are the things that have been tried and tried and tried before any of this is actually considered at any point nowadays, right? Yeah. Like but before all. ECT is what you mean. Yeah. It's considered. Yeah. yeah. It's usually when there's a pretty immediate need for some kind of change that needs to happen right away. And we couldn't risk this person harming themselves or just dying from lack of activity. Yeah. yeah. Uh, before. Everything else is impacted by. Like yeah, everything. exactly, exactly. They're at the level of extreme impairment for the most part. So like I said, uh, looking at the, the research that people have done really shows that for those people, this tends to be an at least immediate turnaround for the majority of them. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times, not everyone responds to this. And so there have been people who have sort of recommended combining ECT with different types of drugs that people might already be prescribing. And we found, they found out pretty quickly that uh, you do not combine them with uh, some of them. And mm-hmm. one of those is lithium. Uh, the combination of ECT with lithium uh, seems to uh, be 
uh, very ill recommended, I guess. It's a yeah. bad, it's a bad thing. Yeah. <laughs> we'll put it that way. And, uh, however, there have been some research looking at the combination with, uh, ketamine and ketamine is a sedative with ketamine. They actually found that the combination with electroshock or ECT is that there is a prolonged period of confusion mm-hmm. than there would be with just normal ECT. And so, at least the review that I read suggested that this might not be any more effective than ECT alone and might actually be not necessarily harmful, but less effective than okay. ECT alone. And so another couple things just to touch on this, because I think I'd really like to transition to talking about how many people maybe think of ECT or, or electrotherapy is the use of um, shocking someone for like punishment. And we'll mm-hmm. get to that. Um, so just really quickly, a couple other things. If you were to look at an arrangement where someone was receiving ECT, that you're going to see in modern technology is they have these little electrodes are pressed up against their temples mm-hmm. and that those are fed from a machine um, that one regulates the power. And it's going to produce these brief pulses of electricity through the brain as opposed to um, what was most commonly done called the sine wave. And those all were, that those are just continual, right? Exactly rather right. Than yeah, pulses. rather than pulses, and uh, it's believed that the pulses cause fewer cognitive problems than than the sine wave did. But there's actually not really hard research to prove that. It's just it's the common practice. Okay. Um, and then, so so what what is like the thing that actually quote unquote works? Like what is this like mechanism? Right. <laughs> it's. I'm glad you asked that because. Mostly nobody knows. Okay. Yes, it induces seizures, but why should the seizures have any kind of therapeutic effect on something like depression? There doesn't seem to be any real consensus on how or why this would actually affect um, how someone is doing psychologically speaking. Um, they, it, I think there's some evidence to suggest that there's decreased blood flow in the brain, um, at least in the prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. where a lot of the shock actually travels through. But it's not really well understood why it would be the case that shocking someone's brain would result in them yeah. having an improved outcome with respect to depression or bipolar or whatever they're suffering from. Yeah, and not to mention, like kind of like we saw larger in the, the behavioral waves of CBT, um, or as we've talked about in the past, there's behavior just isn't in that one spot, right? Like, right. It's everything that comes into it. So I think that's actually that's a great point that we're probably going to hit continuously and maybe we'll do a more sort of in-depth treatment of is that the brain is a critical feature of the behavioral interaction, of course, and every psychological event contains both the brain and the context in which um, the organism is interacting um, and by brain, I actually really mean the whole, the whole organism. Yeah, yeah. It's not just your brain. It's also your eyes and your ears and your skin yeah, yeah. and your arms and your liver and everything else. Yeah. So all of those things are important in how I, I throw out liver arbitrarily. I, yeah. I'm not to say that the liver has any particular significance, mm-hmm. but the whole point just being that it's, while the brain is important, so is the context and the history and, and all these other variables yeah. that maybe were considered less important in the past, but we've really discovered are uh, critically important mm-hmm. uh, to how... Um, someone's experience shapes up. Yeah. So let's, let's jump into contingent shock then. Cool. How's that different? Uh, well, <laughs> um, a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> so what some people might think of as being ECT where they're thinking like people don't still use shock therapy, do they? Uh, the simple answer is yes. And it's not used as like, you're talking like a psychotic person. We're going to just shock you until you are, um, 
in a you know a coma basically. Uh, but with contingent electric shock, the purpose is, and what we mean by contingent is that it is applied as a consequence. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so it's different in that it only occurs following a behavioral episode where the shock is supposed to work as punishment. Yeah, yeah, a good way way I kind of think of contingent means like if and only if. So if this yeah. happens and only if this happens, then this other thing will follow. That's a great right? way of putting it. Yeah. So where is this commonly applied? Um, you've actually, you've been shocked with contingent electric shock just to like test it, right? That was Mark, actually, my friend. Okay. It was not me. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, like if I inadvertently ex experienced things like that, like sure. working on the house and stuff like that or when I was little, yeah. <laughs> but like not in the... <laughs> The, the sense of that. That was actually, yeah, a couple of colleagues of mine that actually tried that out. Okay. But, um, you, but you're familiar with, like, how it's used? Yes. Uh, yeah, for sure. Okay. So describe one of those settings where what, what might it look like for someone who is receiving contingent electric shock for yeah. a behavior problem? So it's kind of similar to the CCT in the sense that, like, it's a, a last line result mm -hmm. um, when things are really not going well. There's some severe behavioral difficulties going on in someone's life. Um, so some things that kind of come to mind that I've, I've read about before is one of them that really, I guess, struck me was I found a video one night when I was looking around, um, a contingent shock. Cause I remember thinking like, wow, that's insane that someone would be actually doing that. Right. The questions pop up, like what's the voltage? How often? Like how often are they kind of contacting this stuff throughout their day, their week? Is it um, impacting them otherwise where yeah, it, the like side lingers? Effects. Yeah. And they like, maybe experience new psychological problems. Yeah, is there stress and all that stuff around there? Sure. Um, and we can talk about those sort of things maybe a little bit more, extent to which we we kind of measure, like watch for those sort of things. Uh, we as in like psychologists, sorry, not that I use it. Right. <laughs> um but when I was watching this video, uh, it was very graphic and detailed. And I remember the person that they were applying it to had completely chewn off all of their lips. Yikes. And it's not all of – everything was exposed. Like you could yeah. see the jawline up top and below. Mm. Um, and there was bruises and just all over this person um, and bumps and – Basically, it was a, a residential treatment facility, mm -hmm. and everything that they tried was just not working. Yeah. Um, and at that point is when they considered, uh, with that specific case, actually applying it. And for me, I was just kind of like, whoa. Like, it painted uh, this horrific picture. Um, brings a lot of emotions up, but also sure. the conditions under which you would even consider something like this. Right. You know? Yeah. So those are the things that I don't think are... As I find materials on it online, like it's it's actually hard. I, I cannot go back and find that same video from that same source. Mm. They actually pulled it down off the internet, um, which is for reason. You know, there's political reasons and things like that, like why right. an organization might not keep that up. But it also it's hard to kind of point people into like real evidence or cases, at least, as to why you might even consider something like that. Yeah. And so from my experience with some of these instances where someone might use contingent electric shock, as you mentioned, these are for um, last-ditch efforts. So they've already tried all kinds of other therapies. Like mm -hmm. they've been on medication, they've been on restricted diets, they've been through you know a whole gamut of behavioral um, treatments and that sort of thing. And they end up in these cases where their behavior is often life-threatening yes. or severely, severely impairing. And I know I heard about 
there was a, a older gentleman um, who had some some kind of intellectual disability that was pretty profound. Um, I think he had very few communicative strategies, which is to say he couldn't really ask for what he needed. He couldn't really communicate um, with anybody that was around him in a meaningful way. And this particular individual was doing something, this uh, self-harm that took the form of them hitting their head on things, mm-hmm. what we call you know, head banging. And he would hit his head on sharp objects and on concrete, and he was doing like massive neurological damage when he mm-hmm. would do these things. And he'd been through something like six or seven different uh, attempts to alleviate this with virtually no success at all. And I heard that when they put him in this facility where they then applied the continued electric shock, they shocked him maybe three times, and he never hit his head again. Yeah, so the the contingent part is kind of key there, right? Right. Um, It's following something, and it's immediately following that actually can produce this decreased rate of future responding. Oh, that's a great point. So it wasn't just they like put him in a room and it was like shock, shock, shock. You're good to go. Yes. It was he hit his head, and then there was immediate response of shock. Yeah. That's the consequence. Hit your head. Yep. You get shocked. Yeah, and like a general best practice of what I'd read was you come in with kind of like a quote-unquote, medium strength. You're not coming in with a low strength of like a shock. Right. And then increasing it because you can actually have some tolerance effects from those sort of things. So they build like a tolerance to like an increasing amount of potential. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually a best practice approach for punishment in general. Um, The technical term of punishment of you're you're making some sort of change contingent with the intended effect of it decreases rates of responding. Okay. Um, but yeah, in addition to those sort of things, there was also the, depending on the, the location, I know one of them that I researched a lot w- required extensive postdoctoral training, review boards, and approval mm-hmm. yeah. um, from local judges as well. Bef- doc- not only showing documentation, but like exactly what happened when they tried all these other treatments beforehand. Right. And only then was it then considered to be written once it was approved. And then once it was written, um, the people who wrote it not only kind of went through their own review, but they weren't allowed to be the ones that like applied it. Right. There was a lot of safeguards in there. I don't know the extent to which those really are, aren't there in any facilities. Um, I haven't looked around in the last year, but I know that it was a lot more internally regulated and watched over than sometimes painted. Now, what's the potential for sort of harm here? And going back to this particular individual, um, you know, it may have saved his life, but are there people for whom they received continued electric shock and that really wasn't appropriate, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure, right, sure. in the history of psychology. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Um, my understanding is that there's a lot of well-documented, when it's a last-ditch effort, that it's effective and it's useful, mm-hmm. and that the side effects are, are quote-unquote, worth the outcomes that the client leads to, like okay. what they experience, right? right? But I guess part of why I'm kind of hesitant is, like, I, at least now in my life, like, I find it... I got really into perspective taking empathy and those sort of things. Like as much as I want to say, like, you know, like I can put myself in those people's shoes. Like I can't do that (laughs) Um, at all. Like I cannot even pretend for a second that I can really put myself in their shoes and be like, you know, they didn't experience these sort of things. Right. Um, I, there has been reports of, I mean, in the media just in the last like 10 years of people who have received that, um, even minimal amount of times. Mm -hmm. And then later on, even though they experience those sort of outcomes of, 
living a more fulfilled life and whatever it was yeah. that they still remember those sort of things and it kind of kind of haunt them um, yeah. and if that's true and i would uh, i always take people on face value like that like that's that's horrible really sure. um and i don't know how to quantify was that worth uh the outcomes or was the other life before then better right and that's and that actually sort of gets into we talked about the ECT requires informed consent most of the people who end up being in a situation where they might experience uh, shock, um, they are not in the. They don't have the capacity to give informed consent. That decision is made for them by their caregivers, yeah. um, by the people who are sort of the relevant stakeholders for them. And a lot of you know there are cases that these caregivers are really displeased with that as an intervention. So you're right. Like it's it's impossible to say. You know, these people already can't communicate what they need and what they want. And we're sort of like, well, we're going to go ahead and change your behavior. And <laughs> here's here's electricity to yeah. make sure that that works the way yeah. we need it to. And so, um, you know, they, they end up just sort of getting pushed through these systems without a whole lot of um, understanding of what the experience might be for them. But, you know, I think it's safe to say at least that the people who do this, they really do mean well. Like they they approach this with the intention of we are trying to improve the quality of life. Yeah, and 100%. there's there's a lot of safeguards in place to try and prevent abuse or harm mm-hmm. um, that is that goes beyond necessary. And also worth acknowledging that like sometimes that is still going to happen. Yeah, yeah, that's been my understanding. I mean, I like the the kind of furthest down or like a rung of like restrictive approaches to helping somebody that I've ever worked in was in a school system where um, we were contracted as a private entity to help solve some of the situations that the student was experiencing in the school system. Sure. Um, And there was essentially about 14 things that would happen in which you'd kind of drop down into more and more restrictive environments before 14 like interventions like or levels of intervention kind of levels of intervention imagine like a a student in the classroom but then a student in a classroom that's kind of checking in with a teacher once a week like you know i mean progressing all the way down into like you're in your own separate day school and then you're no longer in your own separate day school but you're in a separate day school um and you're not allowed to leave and you have a one-on-one therapist with you all the time sounds like fun and (laughs) when when it came down to that we would have 20 20 uh, there's 22 to 25 people in the largest like team meeting that i ever went to Um, and I was amazed, but at the same time, because of the resources and all that, but it was also awesome that there was so much oversight in those sort of times. Sure. Um, legal defense on both sides, um, making sure that things were kind of going well. Um, so that's when my understanding is like, it's even past that you're going to a judge and you're presenting and, um, they're kind of watching over those sort of things. Yeah. So I think it's probably important to acknowledge we're not really advocating one way or another, whether people should use ECT or contingent electric shock. We're mostly the purpose here is to outline um, and maybe try and address some of the confusion or misunderstandings that people might have. That is that a lot of people hear of something like contingent electric shock or even ECT, not really knowing that there's a difference and just think, Oh my God, like this is the most horrible thing. And it certainly is controversial. And even people who know a lot about it might still have the, like a very anti, you know, uh, shock position or very pro shock position, and really the purpose here was just to illustrate as much as we could why people have these positions and sort of what the considerations are around it. It's just it's not so black and white. As yeah. This is an evil, terrible thing, and we should have never done it. And um, 
you know, it's, yeah. it's just complicated. <laughs> yeah, I guess if any of the listeners heard any sort of like uh, intonations or anything in my voice to kind of convey those sort of things, like especially the, the contingent shock, it was just an area that I got really into reading and trying to understand a little bit more of. Sure. So it kind of leads to those sort of things. Um, but I've never been a part of it used. Uh, I've never uh, tried to work in a place where you can actually use it. Like I just, sure. it's not part of my world other than I dove into it and read quite a yeah. bit one time. <laughs> would you uh, Would you ever want to be shocked? Uh, I would be up for, I always try things once uh, within <laughs> reason. I'm also a fan, like I like to know like what the experience is like. Um, if I don't think it's going to cause me any, me or the people around me helping me experience any sort of distress. Yeah. And uh, my colleagues that have like experienced contingent shock, it did not impact their life to the point that I think they would personally impact mine. I'm not advocating anyone go out and do that. That's just one personal way that I kind of approach these sort of things. Uh, I think personally, I definitely want to uh, experience it. And I, I would actually entertain the idea of having it done to like change my behavior around something like I'm. I, I've in the past been really bad about biting my fingernails and stuff like that. Yeah. It might be kind of fun. But actually, it just occurred to me, as you were saying that, I don't know if you've heard of this before, but some researchers, uh, so this is sort of tangential, I didn't do a lot of research on this, but some researchers tried to develop a thing for uh, showing men what it felt like to give birth or at least go through labor. Yeah. And so they... <laughs> I've never seen this on social media. Yeah, yeah. So they put something on someone's, on like a guy's torso that I think are like these electrodes, as I understand it. Like I, like I said, I didn't do a lot of research on this, but they are supposed to shock them and in increasing voltage to sort of give them an idea of what it's like to go through labor. Contractions, yeah. Right. Yeah. And I don't know if they actually tested this on a woman who's had labor to say, yep, that's definitely what it feels like. Um, but I would actually super, uh, want to experience what that feels like just so I can sort of, uh, be more empathetic toward that experience, uh, that, that I'm never going to have cause yeah. I can't give birth. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I just thought that was kind of fun. So I guess to wrap this up, one, we wanted to mention the tools that they use to do these, um, uh, electric, this contingent electric shock, obviously mm -hmm. they have names. And uh, one of the most common ones is called Cybus. It is, I believe it's mounted on the thigh or something like that. Yeah. And, and it's got like a little battery pack that's controlled remotely. And so what happens is someone, almost like a shock collar for a dog, which actually we didn't even think about talking about shock collars. That's actually no, the, uh, their own form of contingent electric shock they use on animals. We'll, we'll say that for another time because I think there's a whole thing to do on animal training that we can talk about. Yeah. How it's related to animal psychology. Yeah. And kind of paint the picture between the two. Uh, how they're how they're different. Yeah, that's uh, true. Yeah, the human world and the animal world. So anyway, uh, the way that these things are, they're mounted on some part of the body um, in like a strap, and uh, it's controlled remotely through um, you know kind of a controller that can then administer the shock. So I think that in the past they were hooked up to like wires that went to their body, but anymore I think they're yeah. remotely controlled. Yeah, and that's where my understanding is that a lot of the control procedures have been in that the people working with them don't have access to delivering it um sure. and it's got to be uh someone else so it can't be abused oh right right away so it's sort know? of a more senior authority yeah they actually control the delivery of the yeah. shock everything's documented if it's delivered etc yeah. right it's supposed to be <laughs> yeah Pro probably it is it just seems sure sure as hell hope so but i don't know yeah yeah <laughs> all right um i think i think that's everything we wanted to talk about i think that's good Cool. So we covered ECT and so a little bit of history of that and what that consists of, and um, then the how that differs from what someone might think of as shock therapy, where they're thinking of contingent electric shock. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much it. So 
If you are uh, curious about any more of those things, uh, certainly go look that up. And uh, maybe we'll discover something we'll want to dive, we'll revisit this again in the future or go in-depth with another element of it. Yeah, and we can definitely share some resources. Uh, that is some of the resources we jumped into uh, with this episode as well. Yeah, absolutely. kind of chase down. We'll do that. There's a few articles that I read. Same here. Yeah, some things we can, we can post on that. So, all right. Well, thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Why We Do What We Do. If you like what you heard and would like to support the show, please consider heading over to our Patreon account at patreon.com slash podcast. Every little bit helps, and we're continuously lining up perks and merch for our supporters. Contact us on any social media platform at podcast or email us at info at www.podcast.com. You can learn more about this episode and other episodes by going to www.podcast.com. There you will find links and detailed and shareable show notes. This episode of Why We Do What We Do was written and produced by Ryan O. and Abraham. Artwork and logo design by Andrew Pollock at nogdesigns.com. Video and production assistance from Tyler Bessier. And music courtesy of Justin Greenhouse. Justin Greenhouse.